You are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. This is Too Much Information. And we have a packed show today. Two guests. We're, we're, we're slowly inching along to, to turning the new talk show into a full-on uh, something, something. But uh, today we have two guests, and I'm very, very excited uh, about both of them. Cartoonist Lisa Hanawalt and the writer Tim and cartoonist Tim Kreider. So uh, let's start. We're, and we're going to start with Lisa today. Lisa Hanawalt is a medium young cartoonist who resides in New York City, but she's blowing up all over the world. The New York Times, Vice, McSweeney's, The Believer, Business Week, Vanity Fair, and that, dear listeners, is just a smattering, a taste from a long list of publications that her work can regularly be seen in now. And last month, Drawn in Quarterly, one of the world's greatest comic book publishers, just put out her new book, My Dirty Dumb Eyes, a collection of some of her best recent work. Lisa Hanawalt's one of my favorite drawers, and like thousands of her fanboys, I immediately did a double take when I first encountered one of her mini comics a few years ago. Uh, so we post, we're going to post a few of her drawings on the WFMU TMI show page for your viewing pleasure. Uh, but Lisa, are you there? I'm here. Hey, welcome to WFMU. Hello. All right. We got it to work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. You're like uh, sweltering in the heat somewhere in front of an air conditioner? Yeah, luckily I have an air conditioner here. All right. Well, I'm not quite melted yet. Uh, good, 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 good. So thanks for, for making some time to do this. I know I saw on the website you're going on like a world tour. Yeah, a whirlwind tour around, well, not the world, but North America. Mm. <laughs> I just got back from Chicago. Okay, good, good, good. And did you go to the Toronto uh, Comics Festival as well? Yes, that was my first stop. And that's when the book came out, mm-hmm. I believe. So the book is called My Dirty Dumb Eyes. And where did you get this delightful title? <laughs> well, I was trying to think of a title that would um, explain that this book is sort of supposed to be the world through my eyes. Um, and the things that I see in the world are very dirty and often stupid. So uh, <laughs> the title made sense. I see. Now, there's uh, a, lo- a couple illustrated movie reviews in here. And, I- and I've seen some of these online, uh, Drive and the-, the-, the Planet of the, the Apes uh, yes. movie. Who-, wh- who is assigning these to you? And-, and what possibly do they want from a cartoon movie review? I don't know. I just started uh, making those after seeing Transformers 3. Uh, That's where Michael it all started. Bay. Yes. Uh, seeing a Michael Bay movie is a really um, full-body experience, and I thought that words would not be enough to express uh, what it felt like watching that movie for, I think it's three hours long. I missed it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll just have to rent it. Yeah, but you have the other two as well. Who's are, are these assignments or are these things that you're just doing on your own? Because I, I know I've seen them online, like LinkedIn passed around. Yeah, I, I do them on my own. And um, I, I mostly just started doing them and then asking the hairpin if they wanted to publish them. And then uh, Vanity Fair asked me to do one. So they paid me to go see The Vow, <laughs> which there is a we terrible go. movie. Yes, and they say film criticism is dead. But <laughs> I didn't see <laughs> I didn't see Drive or Planet of the Apes, but I still, you know, so I, I read both of those. And I mean, I think my favorite parts were the di- digressions. So yeah. and, you know, where you just kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go this way. And and uh, uh which made me, you know, that's why I asked the question like, did you enjoy doing these sort of things? Were they a springboard for 
you know, uh, to just go your own way or, or did, did, did you like the assignment? Yeah, they started out as just pure pleasure, just um, totally a springboard, just like, well, when I get bored watching a movie, what do I think of? Where does my mind go? Um, so they're not traditional movie reviews. They're sort of just a starting point for uh, other insanity. <laughs> in, in a way, they kind of remind me of how they're getting lots of funny people to do like the television show recaps. That's right. I love those. You don't even have to watch the TV shows to enjoy recaps now. That's what I felt about reading the, you know, your essay on Drive and Planet of the Apes. You know. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but you also have something you did for the hairpin that I think a lot of people uh, on the internet saw, which was your appreciation or investigation or, or what? What is it of Anna Wintour? Oh, I love her. I'm obsessed with her. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I am, she's the kind of person I don't understand. Um, she's very powerful, so I admire her, but she also comes across as very cold and secretive and, um, you know, not, not the warmest personality. So I find that fascinating. And so did, was this an assignment or did you ask the hairpin, like, hey, I want to, like, show her as an ostrich? <laughs> and I asked like, them. I, I approached Edith Zimmerman, who was the editor at the time, and uh, I was a big fan of the hairpin. And I wanted to do something for them. And I thought that that would be a good fit. Well, it, it, it certainly worked. And do you feel, I mean, have you had a sense or know anyone that, that could tell you some intel if she actually saw it? <laughs> no, I haven't heard of whether she's read it or not. I, I really hope that she has. Yeah. And so uh, she's probably blacklisted me from all uh, Condé Nast publications, it, for all I know. Don't you have a, I mean, I just read a, a big list and some of those publications were on there. I, I don't think you're blacklisted yeah, yet. Yeah, maybe, maybe it hasn't gotten around to her yet. Maybe <laughs> she has assistants that block her from seeing such things. Yeah, you do talk about the assistants who keep her eggs warm, which I think was one of my favorite <laughs> details. But you, you say that you're obsessed with her. Do you like drawing stories about actual real people in the world? I do, if, if that person is someone I really fixate on. Like, um, I've been asked to do uh, comics about other sort of figures, like the Kardashians, you know, or mm. Ryan Gosling. Um, but they don't particularly interest me. Like, Ryan Gosling's funny, and I, I drew him when I was writing about the movie Drive, but... On his own, I just don't find him that fascinating. Yeah. And the Kardashians, like, blech, what is there for me to say? Exactly. He's and Ryan's got enough of your attention already. You, you like you said, you've already you've already done him. I've googled him. <laughs> 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 but um, I, I guess for me, even in the Anna Wintour story, my favorite parts are just following your whack, your insane imagination. I mean, I like the <laughs> idea of her becoming a prankster, making models wear things like the the. <laughs> Uh, what was the chaps? Oh yeah, the um, what is it? Big Bird chaps or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. Something I, horrible that I made up. <laughs> <laughs> I blocked it from my memory. <laughs> yeah, and I Drawing guess it was just my way of getting it out of my head, <laughs> so I never have to think about it again. <laughs> so that one's easy to find on the internet, and so we'll put a link up to that one. But you're listening to too much information on WFMU. Our guest today is the cartoonist Lisa Hannawalt one of my favorite drawers who has a new book out from Drawn and Quarterly. Um, so those are some of the more you know, recent famous pieces. But I guess for me, what's always drawn me to your work is, like I said, your own twisted imagination. And I guess if there are sort of like three channels, you would have the animals with hats yeah, and the horses yeah. and the really strange sex stuff. <laughs> <laughs> are those like yep. good chapter titles? 
<laughs> Those would be good chapter titles, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, there's a piece in the book where we learn that some of your former classmates, you tell us, if they did have a recollection of you, it would be as Pony Girl. Like a girl. Yeah, I was a big time horse girl, which is a little embarrassing, and I'm just learning how to really talk about that. Publicly. You don't seem embarrassed about this, Lisa. I'm my way of getting over that embarrassment is drawing about it and talking about it everywhere. So, <laughs> so what does it mean to be a Pony Girl? I don't know. It's just I think it's like a a little piece of DNA in me that I was born with. Um, it's just as soon as it was like a bomb that went off as soon as I started taking horseback riding lessons when I was eight years old. I was just like, oh my god, horses are everything. They're all that matter. <laughs> yeah, and you certainly enjoy drawing them. Like, there's a few. I mean, there's the one. Yeah, it's the airline story. Yeah, extra egg room, which man right. is there's just. A horse man in there. Yeah, but you really you they become your characters, but there's also stories about horses. What what is it? I don't know. It's really hard to explain. It's kind of like asking someone why they like ice cream. It's just, yeah. it's good. It's, my whole body is telling me that it's good and I like it. Yeah, I'm actually drawing a horse comic right now as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. One of the other reviews was the War Horse movie. Yeah. And you talk about like how just, ex you know, anything with the word horse in it is like, you're, you're in. I'm in. I just watched War Horse again recently and I cried again watching it. <laughs> The other one is the animal hats, and I get the feeling that, you know, you probably could just do that, you know, if the publishing <laughs> industry hadn't totally collapsed. And, you know, you could be, like, on every coffee table with, like, Lisa Hanawalt now with Animal Hats Volume 7. That was my original idea, was to do a book just of animals in hats. And um, this was back when I was trying to find an agent that I, you know, connected with, and all of them were like, uh, I don't know if I like that. And really? Then, the agent I went with was the first one to be like, yes, I like it. We could totally do a book of these. <laughs> but I think it's just that the industry isn't isn't what it used to be, no? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to sell people on on that idea. You I have know. to really see them to understand. You are just born too late. Ten years ago, you, we would have been talking about Animal Hats Volume 7. But uh, there are, you know, still assignments to get. There's another story um, in the collection, uh, sort of a cartoon essay of a visit you make to a toy fair with our mutual friend, uh, r the writer Tim Kreider, who's actually That's our right. next guest. Uh, how did that <laughs> one happen? Uh, I found out that I was able to go to a toy fair. Uh, my boyfriend's mom um, has connections to get into some of these expos, so um, she got passes for me and Tim. And yeah, I just I thought it would be fun to write about. I I really like toys but obviously don't have the same connection to them as I was, as I did when I was little. Um, so yeah, I thought it would be interesting to go and it was actually like kind of depressing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so wait, wait, it wasn't an assignment. It was just, it was all on your own. No, it was all on my own. For the most part, I, I kind of like to do my own. I, I like to assign things to myself and then later I see if publications are interested in them and maybe that's the wrong way to go about it. But, no, I think it's um, the right way to go. For you, I think that's absolutely, because <laughs> then you can be like, it's done. You know, they're like, you know, well, can you redraw these five pages? And you're like, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to get paid for things that way, but at least it's my unadulterated vision of what I want yeah. to do. Do you think it's getting easier to get paid that way? I don't know. It's kind of hard to get paid to draw comics. Yeah. You know, for the most part, uh, the things I get paid the most to do are the things I feel like doing the least. Yeah, uh, that's so, how the world works. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I do illustration work here and there, 
uh, just in between doing comics, mm. and things that I really want to do. Well, the comic essay, as you know, um, I'm thinking of like some of the crumb ones that we see in the New Yorker. I mean, those right. those can those can work out so well. Or the Canadian, um, what's the other Canadian? The David, oh man, why is his name blanking? Drawn and Quarterly's put out a lot of his books. Who am I thinking of? Oh, I don't Saskatchewan know. guy. I don't know. Oh. Anyways, it'll come to us in a minute. But uh, <laughs> it seems that there's still a lot of power in the cartoon essay. But it seems that you kind of show that you're going on in, into the toy fair under false pretenses. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that'd be funny. I'm, a, I'm also a really huge fan of David Foster Wallace's uh, nonfiction pieces. Yeah. And, like, I would never hope to even, uh, like, be compared to him because he's so great. But um, he was definitely an inspiration that yeah what i think one of my favorite things about that piece is that the toys some of the toys that you're kind of checking out they're like almost as twisted as some of your crazy gadget creations that you totally make up <laughs> yeah there's some weird ass toys yes there's it's a like lot a lot of failures in that room yeah <laughs> but in a way it seemed like a, a gleeful secret way for you to kind of like show that okay your fake stuff is just as real as these crazy things yeah yeah uh. man I like that a lot. But um, <laughs> there's a few other instances of the real world kind of creeping into your work, which I, I, I wanted to ask you about. There's a, one of my favorite stories is the conversation between Animal Girl and Animal Boy about Animal Girl's finger sculptures. And this <laughs> oh, yeah. ends with a picture of actual, an actual picture of some finger sculptures taken by your actual boyfriend, right? Oh, well, the picture was taken by my studio mate. But, ah. um but yeah, I, I made those fingers and then I w worried about what the hell I was even doing and why I was making them. And then I made this whole comic based on that dilemma and sort yeah. of um, tried to sort of encapsulate how being creative is not all, all joyful and all fun, even though I should never complain about what I do, but it feels bad a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, but that one seemed, it's interesting that you see it as a story about the creativity because I guess for me, it's it seemed more that one and the story of the two animal couples driving. It seemed yeah. much more stories about relationship. That too. Also, like what, what it's like to be in a relationship with someone who worries like that. Um, I think about that a lot. Yeah, those are sort of really silly stories with a very serious undertones to them. <laughs> yeah. And do you feel like you're trying to stay faithful to this text? Because again, they seem like taking away the animals and... In, there seems to be something really personal and honest to something that obviously happened to you. So do you feel that you need to, is there something you need to stick to that like sort of a, an outline that you kind of can't deviate from? Uh, no, I can, I can deviate from it. I can, I can make it whatever I want, but, um, I guess, you know, I, I could draw myself and my real life boyfriend in photorealistic style saying those things, but it would be a little too personal. Um, it'd be a little too unmasked. So um, I use the animals as a way to sort of, it's kind of defensive. It's like, well, if, if the moose is saying something really stupid, I can be like, well, yeah, it's just a moose. I know. It's so <laughs> you know, great. silly moose character. It's so it's great to hide movie. behind things that you can put in your own <laughs> work. It's great. You have to protect yourself. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a diary comics person. I mean, I love to read them, but I just don't make them really. Or I guess I do, but I, you know, it's not the same. Yeah. But what was it? I mean, do you, do you have lots of failed attempts at stuff like that? Because there's, you know, like those oh, yeah. two. Oh, okay. yeah. 
tons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have tons of things I've written out, and they're just uh, they're almost they're too personal or something. I mean, I want to experiment with that more. Actually, is making comics that are a little bit more sad than they are funny, but mm. uh, it's <sighs> not as easy. No, and also, you know, we know a lot of cartoonists between the two of us, and I have to say yeah. that you seem on the more well-adjusted side. <laughs> <laughs> glad it appears that way <laughs> oh yeah you're faking it till you made it I mean, oh yeah i'm a i'm a mess but <laughs> <laughs> but you I'm know i hide it well no you hide it very 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 well but we <laughs> just, we just talked about a you know a large variety of different kinds of comics that and you do them all and seeing them all together in one book i i really yeah i really like seeing them all in one book because it seems like Good. you're kind of defining you. yourself as or is refusing to define yourself as as doing one kind of thing I think I'm always going to be this kind of one woman anthology style of artist. I don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to be the 600 page graphic novel kind of cartoonist. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to do things in bits and pieces. It's just the way I work. I get bored easily. (laughs) But it strikes me that today it's like becoming even, it's becoming harder and harder to do anything in this world without kind of being put into the box as like uh, animal hat lady you know and and since cartoons and and i find this especially offensive when it comes to cartoons because cartoons are this ultimate medium of imagination plus ink plus paper plus pen equals anything yeah it can be anything really but do you find that you have to explain like sort of like you know this anthology is like a very great way of of presenting yourself as like you're not not just animal hat. But do you th- do you think I'm right there that there it's getting harder and harder for for cartoonists to to sort of ha- be an anthology type of artist? I'm not sure because there's a lot of um, uh, cartoonists my age now who are doing work in this sort of way where they do sh- a lot of short stories all collected. So maybe it's a trendy thing. Mm. You're the tip maybe. of the, the iceberg. Yeah, um, but, but it is it is hard to explain. It, it was hard to explain when I was initially putting the book together what I wanted it to be, and I struggled with that a lot. Hmm. I hear a dog barking. Is that yours? No, oh. there's dogs out on the street. Oh, there always are. Um, <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I so, love seeing dogs. <laughs> the cartoon world has, you know, it's just crazy to watch how much it's changed over the last 10 years. I mean, we still have superhero movies. I mean, Man of Steel, Avengers, Batman. I mean, it seems like that's still like the big thing, but there's just so many awesome kinds of uh, cartoonists working today. And do you, do do you feel that like you're part of like a new wave or, or or do you, or, or do you? Yeah, a little bit. It seems like a lot of uh, cartoonists around me are, are getting snatched up by the animation industry and, and getting TV shows and stuff. So that's really exciting. It seems like, um, we're considered to be like an untapped resource of, yeah. <laughs> of TV ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, th- I think that's good. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And I think even the more money that Hollywood rakes in from those movies is good for comics yeah. too. I think so. It's more jobs. That's for sure. Yeah. Jobs um, are good. And it also seems that, and, and again, being in New York city, maybe I am bl- have blinders on, but it just seems that there are so many more female cartoonists today. And yes. Yeah. That's a huge thing. Um, but you've been it's traveling. Still, it's still more. mostly white guys, but <laughs> but more and more uh, female cartoonists are up and coming, and um, hopefully more minorities too. Yeah, and, it's hard. and it is predominantly white though. And is this you know for the because uh, you were part of a studio that had uh, a bunch of uh, female cartoonists, uh, Pizza yeah. Island. But is this like a New York? I mean, like you've been traveling on this 
you know, you've gone to a bunch of conventions. Is it? I don't. I've been to a few here in know, Angoulême. It might have been a New York thing because when I was living in L.A., uh, it was mostly older men who were doing comics. And mm-hmm. uh, part of the reason I was interested in moving out to Brooklyn is that there were a lot of people my age doing comics and a lot of them were young women. And um, it's just, you know, I was like, OK, cool. They'll be my crew. Like, I relate to these people. They can be my friends. Um, so, yeah, maybe they all flock to certain cities. But I think in general, more more women are are feeling okay about making comics and yeah well why would they want to i mean it was always been (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's just because you know if you think back uh when you just said it was a bunch of white dudes but i would say it was just a bunch of you know badly adjusted dudes uh (laughs) over the (laughs) years that's one of the things i like about comics too is there are a lot of weirdos in this world and i love weirdos yeah. I feel I mean I am a weirdo so You are. I, and you I'm know like my people. <laughs> we we have to come back to the sort of like the last silo in this in this book is the weird sex stuff. And you say yeah. you're shy and you don't want to expose yourself too much but man at least there's some there's some strange things in here. <laughs> I'm not a freak, I swear. I just like have a kind of vivid imagination and I think sex is really funny and weird and um the way I I draw it is not very erotic. I have to say it's like pretty Pretty yeah. rough. <laughs> yeah, but I was so I was on the subway last night. I was taking I took the book with me. I I had to go out to Queens, so I had a long ride. And uh I was sitting next, you know, and I was just looking and then I I I rarely pay attention. I can kind of get lost in my own world and I was reading the remembering game. <laughs> there's a scene of like uh, uh I don't even know how to describe. Man, you know, there's a, there's a hot dog. It's it's that a bun. That was really gross. Yeah. Even that one I'm like, "Oh man, I don't even know if this is going to be okay in there here, but I don't yeah. know. My editors at D&Q let it stay in, so I blame them. Oh, well. so and then I look up, and there's like this nice woman who she didn't want to see that. Oh, <laughs> she was sitting next was she to upset? me. Upset. She was. She was baffled. I don't think she was upset. I th- <laughs> and I, I think she was baffled. I think it was you know one of those things that. Uh, uh, but yeah, there's there's a. Uh, uh, do you so being a shy person? Do you feel that um, the sex uh, is there stuff that you're like okay, there's just no way I can do this. Uh, no, I think drawing is my way of saying whatever the hell I want to say. Um, yeah, I, that's always how it's been for me is I can just draw whatever I want. And there's a few things I've drawn in the past where I look at them now and I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> that is really gross. Uh, but I'm, I still feel good that, about having done it. Well, Lisa, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. You know, I have our other friend here uh, who who wants to say hello to you, who actually uh, is in your book as well, and this is Tim Kreider. Hey, Tim. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Tim. How, How are, are you? I'm okay. How are the 30s going? Um, they're good so far, actually. Oh, After you're... the the initial hump of my birthday, mm-hmm. uh, I feel good now. I was just at Lisa's birthday party on Friday night. And you're taunting her <laughs> for being old. I'm just, hey, I'm just old checking man. in. <laughs> well, Tim sent, he emailed me a comic about turning 30, and I actually haven't looked at it yet because I don't want to feel depressed. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you think one of my cartoons would depress you? Uh, I don't know, just a hint, just an inkling. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, well, Lisa, thanks again for, for coming on the show. The, the book is called My Dirty Dumb Eyes, uh, and it's from Drawn and Quarterly, and it is uh, such a great read. Recommend it for, uh, for your summer beach enjoyment and uh, 
<laughs> wherever you need to go. But just if you are reading on the subway, just, just hide it from children, please. Or, or or the nice elderly women who are just trying to make it home. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, old people. They hate my work sometimes. <laughs> really. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes right. they love it. Uh, do you do you have any uh, signing readings that you're doing in New York? Or has uh, that already happened? Not upcoming, but. You know, follow my Twitter and my Tumblr, and I'll yeah. keep that updated on any appearances or events. What about the fall? You know, now that the Brooklyn Comics Festival isn't going to happen, I don't. What the hell oh, are we yeah. going to do? Well, I'm going to be at San Diego Comic Con, and then I'm going to be at the Small Press Expo in Bethesda in September, and yeah, I'm doing what? the Brooklyn Book Fair in I'm September. Not, I'm as not well. asking about you. I'm asking about us. <laughs> what about oh, the oh, people who want to um, go to the best comics festival in in the city? And it was just a subway ride away to Williamsburg. What are we going to do? That another festival will crop up in its place, but um, I don't know. Man, that one was so good. That's it was good. I'm really gonna be rest got, in peace. Rest in peace. All right, we'll let you go, Lisa. Thanks again for coming on the show and uh, we'll have some links on the Accu playlist to your work. All right. Thank you so much. Yep, Bye, take care. Guys. Bye, Lisa. All right. So our other guest today, I'm going to put on some more music, you know, to give you a proper introduction. Is this my theme? No, no. It's not your theme, but I think, you hear it? It sounds like, like white noise. Yeah. I maybe I have the wrong track. Let's see. That's really not working, is it? Ah, there we go. Is that better? I kind of like the wind better as my <laughs> signature sound. Wasn't it Colonel Flagg on MASH who used to say, I am the wind? You know, I never saw that show. Sorry, old man. But uh, Tim Crowder's been blowing up in the New York Times with some of his columns over the past few years. Last week he had one about getting accidentally CC'd and what it's like to learn what people really think of you. His first book of essays, which is called We Learn Nothing, just came out in paperback. And it includes the Times piece that traveled all over the world via Facebook and Twitter, which was The Busy Trap. And this led to Tim doing all kinds of television and radio, including two WFMU appearances. He was on Christie's show and on this program. But Tim has been a regular on TMI for four years now. Tim and I have actually known each other since 2006, I think it was. Yeah, right? 2006? That's when I first saw his mini comic written no, about. No, Ben, we've known each other since no, 1996. Oh man, I got that completely wrong. <laughs> A whole decade. We've known each other since 1996, <laughs> when I saw his mini comic written about in the Comics Journal. Yeah, it's all a blur. But since most of the essays in Tim's book are about friends and writing about friends, I thought I'd have him on the program so I could ask, you know, in front of people with witnesses, the most important question. Mm-hmm. Why am I not in the book? Maybe you'll be in the next book. No, you, no. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I'm already writing about you. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, well, actually, One never th- knows. there's an insurance file. That's, that's kind of a trick question. I have an insurance file that keeps me safe from, uh-huh. from being in one of Tim's best-selling books. But we'll, we'll come back to that. But Lisa Hanawalt, who we just heard from, includes drawings of you in the essay on the visit to the toy fair. It's true. How did it feel being on the other end of the of the process. Well, Lisa's since given me the original of that um, illustration. And How did it feel to be like depicted by someone else? Initially, I was appalled. <laughs> I was appalled. Well, you know, I, 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 it's nice to imagine that you appear attractive to girls, and and yet my first impression of that drawing yeah. was like, oh, is that is that what I look like? My face is all mushy. Mm. Um, 
And Lisa assures me she does not see me as some mushy-faced old dude. Um, and yet, that's how it looked to me. Uh, but I, I remember having to have a little talk with my friend uh, Megan Kelso, the cartoonist, back when I started drawing her in my weekly cartoons. Because I made her look like some batty old lady. Uh-huh. Uh, and we had to have a, a serious little, you know, heart-to-heart sit-down about that. Really? She was angry? She was initially, her reaction was the same as mine to Lisa's picture. She was initially not flattered, but she realized that she did, in fact, have a, a batty old lady aspect to her personality yeah. and that I had observed her well and with love to have been able to discern that and bring that out in a drawing. You know, it's funny. That and, you, and, you know, I, I actually do love that that drawing by Lisa. I make that face. I mean, I recognize that, oh, yeah. that I, expression is one of them. I recognize that it's, expression, too. But I would find that you would be much more offended by the line, I found Tim in the Star Trek cologne booth. <laughs> I was in the Star Trek cologne. Yeah, well, I, I think I, I went. Be... I went to smell the Star Trek colognes. Yeah, I wanted not... to see what shirtless Kirk smelled like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I just find that you know, you know, that would be that that. I mean, what can I say? That's yeah. where I was. You going to try to get one of the pretty girls to give you a glitter tattoo? Like, I did get a glitter tattoo. Yeah, that, we both did. That doesn't that that sounds like maybe something less to be embarrassed by. But the mm-hmm. Star Trek cologne. Oh, good God. Um, but you, you write about your friends a lot. Uh, there's three very strong essays in the new collection, uh, uh, in particular, about three friends. Uh, one, tragically, who died. And one, uh, a story about a guy named Felix, who doesn't speak to you. And then you have an essay about a guy named Ken, who was a former friend of yours who got into peak oil. And I remember... We were in New York. This was years ago. You were getting on the subway to go to Penn Station to go attend some peak oil conference. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which he he paid for me to go to that. He, really? Yeah, he paid my entry fee. And he paid for Tom Hart to go, too. Another cartoonist. Uh, yeah. Um, he really wanted to educate all his friends about the, yeah. the urgent threat. Now, he knew. Oil. You told him you were going to write an essay about him. And, and how, did, how did he feel about that? I this a- After he... He actually walked the walk with regard to peak oil. He wasn't just a guy who sat around in bars telling us that the world was going to come to an end. He um, sold his house, which was in the East Coast megalopolis, and he moved to a two-acre plot of land out in the heartland uh, where uh, the human-to-non-human biomass ratio was more favorable. And... um, started cultivating a garden and a nut and fruit bearing forest and once he had established this uh, homestead out there basically in anticipation of the collapse of industrial civilization I said well he he was constantly lobbying Uh. for me and another friend of ours to come visit come visit well he wanted to, to be in his cult well, it all had that sense of like where you go to uh, Hawaii, but you have to look at a timeshare condo. Yeah. You know, they'll fly you there, but you're going to spend the whole time in a conference room with no windows watching a PowerPoint yeah. presentation. He, he needed more workers for the commune. Um, well, it it had the sense it didn't it didn't feel like just going to visit a friend. And I I got kind of interested in writing about this, and I told him why I'd kind of like because I wasn't going to go visit him under false pretenses. And I said I'd like to come visit you. Uh, and write about this. And he got very squirrely about it and basically forbade me to. He did not want to be, I mean, he wanted to proselytize about this, but he didn't want the narrative taken out of his hands. He didn't want me writing about him. Yeah, but, and, and what was your response to that? I, at the time, I said, all right, you know what, forget it. I'm not going to write about you. And we dropped the whole thing. 
Um, but I, I thought it was unreasonable of him. I yeah, mean, like because <laughs> people have asked me, "Hey, can I write about this embarrassing thing that happened between us ten years ago?" Yeah. And I kind of winced, but said, "Yeah, it's your story as much as mine. Go ahead. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to enjoy reading it, but you know." And and but, I think that's the correct response. I think that's a reasonable response. Yeah, but I think things are are changing in a, in a weirder direction. There was a a couple months ago, I was at this party and. There was a group of friends that had just walked in from having a crazy adventure somewhere mm-hmm. else. There was like an insane person with blood and uh, uh, knives involved. It sounded like they had been on a very, had an interesting adventure. And one of the mm-hmm. guys takes out a piece of paper to the other three, there was four of them, and says, I want you all to sign that, that I get to write about this, what <laughs> happened to it. Because, <laughs> you know, I have the right. I want you all to sign over your copyright uh-huh. because this story of it just happened. And I witnessed this fight, like, take place, even though it was, like, all of them. And one actually said to the guy, like, dude, this is going to be part of my first movie. No way am I signing this piece of paper. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a, a verbal version of that I remember from must have been t- more than 25 years ago when I was in college. I was walking through downtown Baltimore with my roommate. We were both in the writing program, and, and we saw a homeless guy uh, passed out under the neon cross and sign for Mercy Hospital. So it's just a cross and, it's, and the word mercy. Right. And he said, that's mine. <laughs> he just wanted to use that image. Yeah. He was just calling dibs on it. Yeah, I just I didn't use the image, but I actually I did use the image. I, I wrote about I wrote about oh, an, good. and es- I wrote a whole essay about intellectual uh possessiveness. Yeah. Well, it just seems that in this era where everyone is, you know, kind of having their like, all right, maybe that dude's not going to make his Hollywood movie, mm-hmm. but you know, he could write something about it for his Facebook page or his his Tumblr and, mm-hmm. and it seems like perhaps we're having more people fighting with each other over who owns the stories rather than what I think traditionally would have been like, oh, can you leave me out of, of your story? Mm. Like that's sure the new fight. I'm sure there must be examples of this from, I don't know, back when all the writers were hobnobbing together in Paris. I mean, sure. there must have been parties that everybody ended up writing about or incidents or affairs. Just or, change or the city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for you and Ken, there was a specific ask, I don't want you to write about this. And eventually yeah. you had to say, I mean, because you're, you're a very generous guy who takes friendship very seriously and event you know obviously he had no claim over legal rights you were more worried about well moral rights by by the time i wrote they call it in europe moral right to privacy do they yeah interesting we we don't have that here no we in fact we don't have moral (laughs) rights of any kind in this country Nope. nope uh that's not so much our thing um well by the time i made up my mind i was interested in writing that essay after all and i realized that i didn't need to visit him and it didn't have to be so much about him per se um our our friendship was effectively dead like we really just hadn't spoken much anymore and mostly because he couldn't talk about anything Mm. other than peak oil and if you and if you finally forbade him to talk about that your relationship effectively was over um so my concern wasn't salvaging the friendship which was already you know you had a way out you had a way out in your moral calculus basically this guy's off my friend list no problem no i mean i still worried about the effect it would have on him it didn't make me happy to think didn't of stop you him. from doing it I, you know I, I can't think of many other instances where my um ethical and artistic instincts have been so at odds really because the, the I still don't feel I don't, I don't feel great about having written it as a person but I, I think it's one of the best essays oh, it's in the one book. of my it's one of my favorite ones too but it's interesting the three I'm picking um, you have one friend who tragically died mm-hmm. um, 
this guy who's in peak oil world, friendship's over. And then you have the story about your old friend Felix who has defriended you. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, was ask, I was thinking maybe you could read the first few paragraphs of that one. Yeah, sure. I, I, I typed that out for you. Did you? Yeah, by, by hand, hand typed yeah. it out on, on, on an old uh, manual typewriter? I copied and pasted it. <laughs> All right, so this is the beginning of an essay that, that Tim Kreider, our guest here. It's called uh, The Anti-Kreider Club. Yesterday, my friend Harold reported another Felix sighting. Harold was walking out of a supermarket in Baltimore when he happened to see Felix walking in. Felix made a gesture of casual command at the automatic doors and a sound effect under his breath like, which Harold understood was meant to indicate that Felix was opening the door with his mind. My laughter at this story was fond and grudging, the kind that says, that guy. I haven't seen Felix in over 10 years. We met on the first day of fourth grade in 1976 when we were nine years old. Grown-ups aren't supposed to talk about best friends anymore, but he was among my closest and certainly my most constant friend from then until we were well into our 30s, when he inexplicably disappeared on me. By which I don't mean he fled the country or changed his identity or got abducted. The last I heard, he was still living in Baltimore. He just stopped returning my calls. It took me almost a year of leaving messages on his answering machine to get the hint. It took me much longer than that to understand that I was never going to know what had happened. Losing a friend doesn't hurt as intensely as a romantic breakup, but it often hurts more deeply and for longer. I can have friendly and affectionate conversations with women over whom I was publicly sobbing just a few years ago, but being reminded of Felix, whom I haven't seen or spoken to for over a decade now, still makes me go quiet with puzzlement and sadness. Our society doesn't officially recognize friendship as an institution in the same way it recognizes sexual relationships, so there's no real protocol for ending one. If you've been going out or dating or just sleeping with someone for a month or two and you want to stop seeing them, you're expected to have a conversation with them, letting them know it and giving them some bogus explanation. This conversation is seldom pleasant. It ranges from brittle adult discussions in coffee shops to armed standoffs in daycare centers. But once it's over, you at least know your status. But because there's no formal etiquette for ending a friendship, Most people do it in the laziest, most passive and painless way possible, by unilaterally dropping any effort to sustain it and letting the other person figure it out for themselves. I do know some people who have explicitly renegotiated the boundaries and conditions of their friendships, but these people have all been female. I hesitate to draw any broad generalizations along gender lines, but it feels to me as if it's taboo in male friendships to talk about the relationship itself. When I've had to end friendships, I've been just as graceless and craven about it. Listening to the other person's puzzled phone messages, reading their jokey slash plaintive texts, I feel the same way I do when I smack an insect and it doesn't quite die but lies there piteously writhing. When it's you doing the defriending, the defriendee just seems pathetic and needy, not getting the obvious message, overstepping the boundaries everyone else implicitly understands. You want to say, look, we were friends in college. That was 20 years ago. It's always you who's the reasonable one, and the other who's being either unfathomably cruel by defriending you or clingy and demanding by not accepting their defriending with dignity. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's the beginning of, of, of an essay called The Anti-Crider Club in our guest uh, Tim Crider's book, which is called 
We Learn Nothing, which is just out in, in paperback. Thanks for reading that, Tim. Sure. I think that's my favorite, one of my favorite ones in the book, mostly because I know Felix, the, who you're mm-hmm. using a pseudonym, but I met him the same time when I met you in 1996, and I can see him opening the door <laughs> with his mind. And also, oh, I, wow. you know, I had to witness you going through that, mm-hmm. kind of wondering why this guy wasn't talking to you anymore. And do you feel, uh, I don't want to give away the whole thing of the essay, but uh, you kind of go through your history with him and thinking about male friendship and thinking about what happened. But I'm not sure, you, you, I mean, you, you tell us pretty much that there's not an answer that you come up with. No, there's not, a, there's not a solution to the mystery in the essay or in real life. I mean, I'm not gonna know, probably. Um, this is something I've always wanted to ask you, and we'll just do it on the radio. But do you feel like you were kind of writing this to him? I mean, it's it's not like I wasn't aware on some level that he was likely to read it someday. He does read, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was a smart, literate guy. He read. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be hard to know that there was an essay about you out there and not read it eventually. I mean, when yeah, but, I f- if, but if you didn't care about this guy and you defriended him... You just, well, the ultimate revenge would be just not even to bother to read it. I suppose so. Still, most people's curiosity about such things is, uh-huh. uh, I, I, who knows? Maybe he didn't read it. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, to some extent, it's a, it's a letter to him. I mean, I wouldn't have written it as a letter to him and, uh, purely and then foisted it on the reading public. <laughs> it's, you know, it's for everybody who's ever had this happen, which yeah. is most everybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on some level, sure. I'm I'm aware that he was out there and was you know reading this over my shoulder or over the general reader's uh-huh. shoulder. And again, sort of if you compare those three essays, you kind of have you're writing about friends that are deceased, d- you know, gone mm-hmm. or in La La Land. <laughs> I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll call Peak Oil Man in La La Land. You may call it that. Yeah, I may call it that. I won't get su- I won't get you sued. But I. Uh, Coming to a question. Oh, he'll have the last laugh when the oil runs out, my friend. (laughs) He'll be mocking you and all of us. But what do you think about friends? Like, say, if I came to you and said, you know what? I don't want you to write about me. Mm -hmm. What would your answer be? You have said that. That's true. I have said that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, all all three of those people were gone from my life one way or another and it's easier to write about people if you don't have to worry about maintaining Mm -hmm. a relationship with them i mean i I did also in the book write about some people i am still friends with like jenny boylan and my Uh half sisters people on whose good side i hope to remain and you know that was trickier yeah that's a minefield yeah yeah well i mean you we got in the uh, skirmish a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and I was defriended for a little while. You but were, uh, yeah. I think you were you were off the list for like two years. Yeah, it was about two years, and this happened after nine uh, eleven. Mm-hmm. And so it's it feels like I have extra power for my request to say that I would not like to be written about because. So what happened was it was <laughs> after nine eleven, and. Uh, I was like, what should I do for the radio show? This, this is when I was living in Boston, and I had a show. And I was well, like, it wasn't after 9-11. It was the day of 9-11. It was 9-11. Oh, you're right. It was that night. It was September 11th, oh, 2001. It was that night. So I guess I started. You were the first person I called. A complicated day. It was a complicated day. So I started It was reco- an emotionally fraught day. I People were reacting in all kinds of unpredictable ways. In, including myself. And I had this idea that, you know, I should just record all of my friends and not, telling them that, not tell them that I'm recording and call the show Hijacked. 
<laughs> a stroke of genius. <laughs> Which was my idea for the day. And Tim did not like how that came out. Uh, and I aired it. And he was very, you were very mad at me. I was very mad. Yeah. So it feels like if I was able to, if I asked you. Listeners are free to weigh in on the message board uh, <laughs> whose side they're on in there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not a question of whose side. It's just that m- your moral right you felt was violated. I, f- I f- actually felt my legal rights as well had maybe been infringed. Oh, yeah, there was In that. the state of Maryland. <laughs> there was Recording that too. people without their consent is illegal. I think that was the last line I used of you in the piece, That's of you right. threatening me. It is, it's a measure of how deranged I had become that, yeah. I, that I threatened legal action, oh, which, which sounds really boring and difficult. I, know, I would never weir- sue anybody. It's very weird thinking about that moment now. But now, my point is, is if I was to ask <clears> you, uh, for for moral right to not write about me, wouldn't when when do you feel there's a special like gravity gravity? There's there's the weight of my of a threat history. behind that of, of force, <laughs> blackmail really. Now, do you find it at all ironic or maybe nonsensical that you're threatening <clears throat> to retaliate to my possibly writing an essay about you by publicly doing just about the worst thing I might possibly reveal in such an essay? Oh, you would write about that. I, I think I might. Oh, you can write about that. What is it you're worried about? <laughs> See, to me, it seems like I, you're, you're, you feel that I'm slandering you as a murderer and publicly threatening to kill me. Well, there's, there's, you're right. You're right. This may be a little <laughs> convoluted here. I guess what I'm getting <laughs> what at is... What is it you're worried about me writing if it's not that? Every, just everything else. <laughs> everything else. <laughs> <laughs> it has, we've known each other since 1996. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, but... Do you like writing about friends, and do you worry that uh, once you write about all every single character? friend I have in the world, that yeah. I'll be out of material? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you have you have you've got some characters left to. to I write have a about. lot of friends. Yeah, you're doing the next book. I mean, my friends are the main thing in my life. It's my main subject. I mean, you know, I write about people because what else are you going to write about? Yeah, but what about the ones who did take issue with with some of the things you wrote about? Not just you know, Mister uh, Peak Oil guy. You mentioned your half sisters, and mm-hmm. you know, so there were there were some some people that maybe didn't like how it came out. Is this some of them are writers though? So it seems that. From a writer to writer, how are you really going to argue about that? How is a writer going to say to you, you can't do that? Uh, are you thinking of Jenny Boylan? Yeah. Yeah, she didn't take issue with anything I wrote that I remember. I think she might have, like, that that essay, um, Jenny Boylan's, um, uh, maybe I don't have to explain this to your listeners, you but she's a she's a old friend of mine and a, and a writer who uh, has written a couple of memoirs, one of them a bestseller, about changing genders. And I think she might have been a little hurt that my essay focused almost entirely on when she was a man, when she was right. Jim Boylan. But in a sense, it was yet another essay in the book about a friend that I lost. I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to hurt her feelings by putting it that way because, you know, in many ways she's completely unchanged and the friendship is continuous. But in another sense, uh, yeah. Jim, Jim Boylan is gone. Um, and so I, I was sort of mourning that friendship in a way by writing that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's just the narrative arc, too. You end with the sex change. I mean, that's, that's kind of a rule of thumb in writing. You, you want to end with the sex change whenever mm-hmm. possible. So you think that I've got it all wrong with my threats. T- I've got this logic. All con- it's all convoluted logic. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> I guess my insurance file like, totally it has no like value. What you're threatening to, to reveal would, would reveal worse things about you than about me. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So our guest for, for here today is the writer Tim Kreider, uh, who you may have seen. has been writing a lot in the New York Times. Um, 
including a piece from last week, which was about learning what people really think about you. But you know, Tim, you have an essay called How They Tried to F Me Over, But I Showed Them. And do you, do you feel that now that you're seeing some of these essays, like The Busy Trap, I'm that was in the New York Times top shared articles of the year mm-hmm. last year. I feel some, some vindication there. With do you think you're feeling that I should feel less effed over? Yeah. Less, less like the oppressed yeah. victim? Yeah. No, it's never enough. <laughs> 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 they will still rue the day. Good God. So you are going to be having another book. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm sitting here at this very moment not working on my next book. It's uh, another collection of essays. This one will probably be more about romantic relationships than about friendship. Um, although we'll see. Yeah. Its working title is I Wrote This Book Because I Love You. So Lisa, who we both know, who was on earlier, talked about David Foster Wallace. Mm-hmm. And, and we, uh, we talked a little about the cartoon essay. But it seems to me that the essay is one of the hardest things to be doing right now. And, and maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong on that. I mean, I was Why? talking to another friend who said, no, it's actually the, <coughs> the one the one type of writing where anything goes sort of like cartooning like it's a, mm. you there are no rules yeah well that makes it seem easier to work in a form but actually more difficult i mean you're less likely to produce something that sucks if you're working within a pretty rigorous form um you know like greek temples or sonnets uh yeah the essay is kind of wide open and it's it's sort of faddish right now yeah. creative nonfiction. um i i it's what I've always written, pretty much. I mean, I talked about writing that essay about intellectual possessiveness back when I was in college, and there wasn't really a market for essays then, at least not that I knew about. I just wrote this thing, and I had nothing to do with it. I didn't write it for publication. Back then, you were supposed to write short stories and then yeah. write a novel and then get That's a That's what you were working job. on when I met you. You were doing some crazy superhero novel <coughs> based on, like, you and Felix. Felix, yeah. That's right. I was. Yeah, it turns out I did not have any idea how to write a novel. I still have no idea how to write fiction. Um, you know, someone someone recently accused me of having made up a detail in one of my essays. Really? They were like, oh, yeah, I call BS on that. He's just, you know, using that to illustrate a point. And I was really uh, not even offended so much because it's not like I have some moral qualm about making things yeah. up. It's just like th- that completely misunderstands my whole MO. Like, I wouldn't know how to do that. It yeah. would never occur to me. It's not like I have some you know, moral reservations about it. It's just, really? yeah, how, I, I don't know how to make things up. And also I, if I made something up, how would I know that thing was true? How would I know that it, it <laughs> realistically illustrated a point? I mean, I don't really understand life well enough to make things up. <laughs> but you have friends who uh, work in fiction and comics and radio who are all the time getting confused and, and combining the, the made up and the not made up. So you've been a party to some of the, pieces we've done together for this radio program i mean i can i can always riff on things sure um i'm sure i've made things up by accident by misremembering them but okay i'm not i see i'm not I making see. things up on purpose i see i see how it goes well we're almost out of time um our guest today has been tim Kreider, the writer author of the book uh we learn nothing which is out now and they put the paperback out with some of the pieces from the new york times how did you feel about that uh i glumly acquiesced to it yeah you like to envision it as a whole, the way it was in the hardback, and you didn't want any extra stuff in there? Nah. No? <laughs> <laughs> I see how it goes, but you can find it. Um, so uh, that is in stores now, as well as our other guest, uh, 
Lisa Hannawalt, author of My Dirty Dumb Eyes. So, Tim, hey, thanks for coming on the show. You can look for my essay on Ben in the next book. It's called <laughs> My Evil Friend. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, thanks once again to Andrea Salenzi for helping with the show today. And you can find archives of the program at WFMU.org. And if you're missing the old format of TMI, you can check out the other podcast, which is called The Theory of Everything. And all the regulars will be there, including this guy. You'll find that at toe.prx.org. Stay tuned for Nardwar. Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, Roger Allen's coming in for the eighth time to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. This time, though, he's bringing a bunch of Canadian hip hop singles. Canadian hip hop singles with guest DJ Roger Allen. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show on. WFMU. To begin with, here's a little Kilo C mix, followed by Maestro and These Eyes on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show on WFMU. (laughs) 
Showing hospitality, grabbing me, showing mad love in the club. Stop. Listen, check my rendition, perform for royalty and politicians. Even done shows with the greatest MCs of all time. I was the one who used to say, I seen a lot of valleys, I seen a lot of peaks, I seen the bitter with the sweet victory and defeat. Sometimes I fell, but a voice kept saying, son, stick to your vision, keep the composition. Seen a lot of shame in the game, seen a lot of pain with the fame. Seen a lot of highs and lows, but that's just the way life goes. See my name written in the lights. I've seen a lot of things in my life. Seen a lot of highs and lows, but that's just the way life goes. Yo. I grab the microphone like a priest does a rosary. Jehovah be shining when clouds are over me. So I recollect, remember Kid Capri. On BLS, played my joint when I heard Protect Your Neck back in 92. But let's go back to 88. Flemington, Don Mills, and Eglinton. Making beats with S and Gel and them. Remember when you labels wasn't feeling me? Next year, changed the scenery. Gave birth to your energy. Tore ice to your public enemy. Much gave me love, you niggas had to envy me. Couldn't stand to see your brother shine. Player haters always working overtime. I see. I seen a lot of valleys, I seen a lot of peaks, I seen the bitter with the sweet victory and defeat. Sometimes I fell, but a voice kept saying, son, stick to your vision, keep the composition. Seen a lot of shame in the game, seen a lot of pain with the fame, seen a lot of highs and lows, but that's just the way life goes. See my name written in lights, seen a lot of things in my life, seen a lot of highs and lows, but that's just the way life goes. People used to say, West, wake up, stop dreaming. You fantasize, fuck the rapping, it won't happen. I paid my dues. Brother, see me sacrifice another song in the key of life. Mr. Mice got the iller track. I did a 360 and seen God staring in the mirror black. I figured that I gotta stay focused. When situations seem hopeless, I'm elevating, breaking the spell of Satan. I want my lyrics written out like Esco to show the rap world how the industry slept. So when I'm gone, the parable will carry on. Young cats can sit back, puff trough, pull out, and sing along. I seen a lot. Of valleys. I seen a lot of peaks. I seen the bitter with the sweet victory and defeat. Sometimes I fell, but a voice kept saying, son, stick to your vision. Stick to your vision. I seen a lot of valleys. I seen a lot of peaks. I seen the bitter with the sweet victory and defeat. Sometimes I fell, but a voice kept saying, son, stick to your vision. Seen a lot of shame in the game. Seen a lot of pain with the fame. Seen a lot of highs and lows, but that's just the way life goes. My name written in lights. I've seen a lot of things in my life. I've seen a lot of highs and lows, but that's just the way life goes. I've seen a lot of shame in the game. I've seen a lot of pain with the fame. I've seen a lot of highs and lows, but that's just the way life goes. I've seen my name written in lights. I've seen a lot of things in my life. I've seen a lot of highs and lows, but that's just the way life goes. Lisa 
And who do we have in the studio right now? Welcome back to Just Chillin', Canada's only all-Canadian hip-hop show. Nardwar, let's take it back to 89. And who are you? Please identify yourself. Such smooth, smooth <laughs> voice guy. I'm Crooked Walker, Roger Allen. Roger Allen returning to the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. People may have heard you before. I called you a guy, but they should know your name by now. You are Roger <laughs> Allen, Crooked Walker. Where have you been before on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show? Where have you been taking people before on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show? And where are you going to take them today? We've done three skate rocks, and today is Go Skate Day, but we're not doing skate rock today. We've also done scary music, all cassette show, the best of Roger Allen, and what else? Did, what else? Um, what else have we done? Nardwar, all cassettes. I don't know. This is my eighth time here. I can't remember all the shows. Eighth time on a Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. And you are an artist slash record collector slash skateboarder <laughs> slash appreciator of all types of music. Yeah. Especially yeah, rap music. <laughs> and today, Canadian hip-hop we're going to explore. Yeah, I wanted to do a Canadian singles and samples show, but after three hours of research, I had discovered that the Avalanches had sampled Wayne and Schuster for Frontier Psychiatrist. It was just too hard to find Canadian-specific samples. I wanted to find like an Andrew Wartz, Robert Flack, Bob James, Wendy, Renee type record, something that had a real iconic sample. Um, I found a few, but for the most part, this is just... Um, an interesting show on Canadian beat makers and rappers. This isn't the history of Canadian rap. This isn't the best of Canadian rap. It's just uh, different years, different DJs, different sounds, all involving hip-hop that I thought I could add something interesting insights to. And Nardwar, you're a hip-hop icon and a proud Canadian, so it makes sense we talk about Canadian rap. Ba-boom! Shout out to J-Rock. What did we just hear off the top right there? Uh, what we began with was uh, Intro to Hip Hop A by Vancouver's Kilo C, and that faded into Stick to Your Vision by Maestro. The full Kilo C mix was made for the documentary Hip Hop A, and that was a film that went through the history of Canadian hip hop, the Canadian hip hop scene. And Kilo C got the O Canada song from a 45 and mixed it on a four track cassette player. The second track was a classic Canadian.